It is Father's Day. Some of the men are thinking, well, the ladies got flowers. What do the men get? We were thinking of that, maybe like wrapping a piece of bacon up in a napkin or something, you know, and handing it out to everybody. I've been, I've been trying to discern whether this is my spirit or it's the Holy Spirit. A, a, word about, a word about fatherhood to my brothers here. Not all are fathers, but you can't be a father without being a man. And so maybe a word about being a man. To those who are fathers, to those who are not yet um, to those who may yet be fathers. I think probably one of the most fun experiences that I have in, uh, in pastoring is pre-marriage counseling. I really enjoy that. It's, it's always fun to, to meet a couple where they're at and to learn what they're bringing with them in terms of beliefs and attitudes into their marriage relationship And undoubtedly, probably eight out of nine out of ten times, the the young men that that I deal with, or the older men that I deal with, depending on when they're getting married, bring to the table, for lack of a better way of saying it, a skewed or warped understanding of what it means to be the head of the household. (laughs) and I won't take long, other than just to say it's always a lot of fun to to go to Ephesians 5 and sort of parse that together as a threesome and to speak to the man and to say, now, tell me, how is it that Christ Jesus loved his church? Because often the man comes with the expectation that his wife, according to Ephesians 5.22, is supposed to submit to him. Headship meaning, I'm the king, you do what I want. And so then I ask him, tell me, how did the king love his church? Well, it looked a lot like this. Hanging on a cross. Giving his life for the sake of his bride, the church. So I guess I would like to just throw out to my brothers who are fathers and those who are not yet and to my gender, we males. There has never been a time, at least in my life, where what it means to be a male follower of Jesus has been more desperately needed in the life of the church and in the life of our culture. We don't need men who go out and shoot things. We don't need men who go out and make obscene amounts of money only to be overgrown babies in the way that they use their money and treat their wives and treat their children and treat women who are objects of their desires and their illicit passions. We don't need men who... Take the God-given strength to subject 
those who are weaker. We don't need men who have egos that find it necessary to put down those who are other than they are, lesser than. We need men who are following hard and passionately after Jesus. We need men who hear the words of Jesus when he says, blessed are are happy or fulfilled are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who are peacemakers, for they will be identified, they will be known as, they will be called children of God. We need men who in their relationships with others, especially females, see them as gifts to be honored and cherished and exalted, not used and put down and subjugated. So my brothers, happy Father's Day. (laughs) Happy Men's Day. Step into the role that God has given you by design and lead as Jesus leads and loves his church. It's called be the head servant in your family. Be the head servant in your social circles. Be the head servant in your place of employment. I don't care if you're the CEO. Be like Jesus and be the head servant. Step up and be the man that God created you to be and filled you with his mighty spirit to be. Amen. Okay, enough of that sermon and on to the next one. <laughs> Some of you know the name Will Willimon. For many years served as the, uh, the chaplain at Duke University. He's now uh, serving as uh, Archbishop in the United Methodist Church down in the south somewhere. Been a local pastor for many years. He was asked one time by a, a friend who was very skeptical of the faith, and he said, he said, Will, he said, why do you need a super, supernaturally resurrected body of Jesus to make your faith work? <laughs> I just love his response. Listen to what he said. He said, I don't need a resurrected Jesus. Come to think of it, I'm not sure I want a resurrected Jesus. In fact, in one sense, a resurrected Jesus is a real nuisance for me. Personally, I've, I've got a good life. I figured out how to work the world on the whole to the advantage of me and my friends and my family. My health is good and everybody close to me is doing fine. I have the illusion that I'm in control, that I'm making a significant contribution to help Jesus in his mission on my own. No, I don't need a bodily resurrected Jesus. In fact, once I truly embrace the resurrection of Jesus, my, my life becomes much more difficult. So when the possibility of resurrection really comes through to you, when the rumor that something's afoot becomes a reality for you, well, you can see why the women in the gospel stories were scared on that first Easter. It's true. He's right. When a person or persons, let's say you and and me, for example really believe that the resurrection is true. That it really happened, that Jesus really did rise 
in his body from that tomb, then we are suddenly confronted, powerfully confronted, with the realities and the responsibilities of what followed. Especially when you think about his ascension back to the Father and the mandate that he left his followers to be his witnesses in the world, empowered by the indwelling Spirit of God. And that is the role, that is the calling of what we in this series together are are calling a healthy missional church. Which, by the way, I think is the only kind of church that is worth talking about. A healthy missional church. Mike, you had some great challenges last week. Thank you. I, uh, I wonder if you've thought any more about Mike's question. What was God doing before Genesis 1-1? That just hurts my head. Well, God was being God. Three in one, one in three, totally sufficient in holy community. Mike's words, before creation, God existed in a mutual interiority of relationship of perfect love. God complete, whole, sufficient in God's self, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is so important for us, I think, to to wrestle with and understand in our thinking about the church as the community of God's people. Christ's body, his actual presence in the world as his people are indwelled by the Spirit. And I also loved your, what I thought was very simple, but right on observation, in thinking and using the language of Veritas, the four categories of churches, Mike's observation was that nobody talks about a healthy, stable church, or a healthy, critical moment church, or a healthy, at-risk church. He's right. It's like talking about a healthy flu bug, or a healthy cancer. Those terms don't belong in the same sentence. A church that is not missional is not healthy in the kingdom sense of the word, which is really the only sense of the word healthy that matters. We, in, in the human sphere, we are tempted, and I think particularly in our culture, we are tempted to, to measure church health in terms of, of numbers and finances and programs. You know, if we've got multiple programs and the numbers are up, attendance is not declining, and the money is strong, we are healthy. Really? I think the health of a church ought to be measured by its visible commitment to living out the mission of Christ. If a church is not doing that, then it is not missional because the very nature of the church is to be about the mission of Jesus. It's what missional means that a church is intentional about accomplishing the mission that Jesus gave to his church. And as we've said before, we can be thankful that we are a stable church and and thankful that we're not a critical moment congregation or worse, an at-risk church. Yes, I think we should be thankful, but, but let's don't be satisfied. We don't ever want to be satisfied with being stable. We want to be healthy off the charts in terms of a church that is missional. Jesus is not satisfied with a stable church. And since we are his church, it makes sense that we probably ought to be 
concerned about his passion and his desire for what he has called us to be. Yeah? Makes sense? Remember his words in Matthew 16? Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not stand against it. The church is established on the unchanging rock of truth that Jesus is the anointed one of God who has come to set people free from sin through his death and his resurrection. And as people who are recipients of this amazing forgiving grace, our role is to be witnesses to the greatness and the glory of God in our lives. All who receive His grace become members of Christ's body, members of His church, and to give witness to the love and grace of God in everything that the church does is its mission. The church is to point to Christ and to the glory of God And in the way that it lives and conducts itself, others are drawn to that experience. Remember that that missional is is not evangelism. Or maybe I should say it's not evangelism only. I think it's it's, it's easy to hear that word missional and and we think missions, uh, we think missions, (laughs) which carries that sense of I've got to go somewhere and I've got to speak the truth. I've got to get the words of Jesus out to others to share the truth of the gospel. But to be missional is by nature evangelistic. But it's more than that. In fact, I think that to be missional in the life of the church is sometimes even harder than evangelism. Think of evangelism as as knowing the the plan of salvation and, and knowing how to present the plan of salvation and then just going to folks and presenting that plan of salvation, some folks find that very easy. But to be missional involves the life and the body and the atmosphere and the general disposition and the character and the focus and the purpose and the intention of the church. That takes, quite frankly, a whole lot more thought, a whole lot more effort, a whole lot more time, and a whole lot more energy. That's why... I think it's a great challenge. A couple of Sundays ago, I left you with a diagram that suggested what I think is, is a fairly radical change in how we ought to see life. You remember the drawing? I just put a circle in the middle of the, the chart, and that circle is, is, is me. And coming off of that circle are the activities of my life. And you take a circle, and you put yourself in the middle of the diagram. And off of that come the activities of your life. And so... I'm involved in things of my neighborhood. There are things that my kids are involved in in school. We have jobs. We have hobbies. We have all kinds of activities. And what I think happens is that the church gets labeled as one of those activities. It's one more thing that we do in a list of busy things in our lives. And... The challenge that I, that I gave to you, and, and you are welcome to disagree with this. Of course, you're wrong, but you're welcome to disagree with it. And that is that, that to make the church just one more activity in our busy lives is an unbiblical perspective. It is an unbiblical worldview. Because, and, and, and Mike referred to some of this last week, 
Our identity in Christ is more than just me and Jesus. You're hard-pressed to find teaching in Scripture that doesn't deal with the body of Christ as being the people of God. It's a plural experience. Yes, I cultivate my life in Christ as His follower, and that can be a very personal thing. But by and large, you're hard-pressed to find in Scripture where your experience as a follower of Jesus is a private thing. It's communal. It's collective. It's, it's the people of God living their lives together. Thanks, Zach. We all know that Christ should be at the center of our lives. But, but what does that look like? Is it, is it me and Jesus, and out of that relationship, I make the decisions, you make the decisions regarding the things that impact your life? I think, I think a more biblical understanding is, is that I need to see that it is my life involved in the body, which is represented in the local congregation of which we call ourselves a part. That life needs to be at the center of who I am. It's like my identification is wrapped up in who you are. And your identification as a follower of Christ is wrapped up in who I am and who this person is and who that person is. And it, it's, a, it's a very anti-American way of thinking about the body of Christ. But I think it's biblical. Mike's challenge last week to understand the oneness that we have with Christ as a call to oneness with the triune God, as lived out in oneness with one another. We cannot become all that we have been called to be in Christ alone. I know that's a strange concept. We, we have everything that we need in Christ, everything that we have in Christ, we are sufficient in Him There is nothing that we can do that makes God love us more or accept us more or forgive us more. It's all complete in Christ. But my growth as His follower, my maturity as His follower, comes in the forge of body life, where the heat is. Sometimes where we get banged around. Is this making any sense? Are we good so far? Okay. In her book titled, Because He Loves Me, Elise Fitzpatrick shares this story. and It it just grabbed me, her her reflection on what she and her husband experienced. She talks about having this opportunity to vacation in Europe a number of years ago. And they went for about three and a half weeks and visited 13 different countries. She said, when we'd enter a country, we'd get our passports stamped exchange currencies, learn a few key phrases, and then off we'd go to visit the natives. We'd wander through outdoor markets, peruse museums, and sample the cuisine. We'd exchange a few niceties with the locals, sit on the steps of cathedrals, watch the life of the town go by, take a picture or two, purchase a little something to remind us of our time there, and then we were off. We had a wonderful vacation. However, our hearts weren't changed in any significant way by our little visits, but they weren't meant to be. We were tourists. And then she says, it seems to me that what I've just described is very close to many people's understanding of the congregational life of the local church. On any given weekend, many tourists can be found in a church. 
They pop in for 45 minutes or an hour. <laughs> they don't worship at Applewood. They pop in for 45 minutes or an hour. They sing a chorus or two. They exchange niceties with the locals. They sample some of the local cuisine. They might purchase a book or CD to remind them of their visit. And then they race to their cars to get to their favorite restaurant before the rush or home before the game. For many people, church is simply about being a tourist. And our land is filled with tourist-friendly churches. Nothing, my friends, nothing could be farther from the heart or the intent of God in terms of the body of Christ. And that's why I think this series is so important for us. Why these texts, Romans 12, and this morning, 1 Corinthians 12, are so foundational to our understanding of what it means to be a a healthy missional church in the world. It really starts with our understanding of what it means to be the body of Christ, to be His people, to actually be His presence in the world. So, we're going to stand this morning and and read together from 1 Corinthians 12. We started with Romans 12, and we'll go back to that. We're going to jump around a bit in this series. There are two, they're, they're sort of like the texts in the New Testament regarding life in the body, the dynamics and the structure. And uh, they're saying a lot of the same things, just in some different ways. So, as we read from 1 Corinthians 12 this morning, I want to invite you to listen closely to the language that Paul uses in this letter. More than likely, it'll be familiar to many of you. Uh, listen to the letter that he uses, or the, the language, excuse me, that he's using in this letter to the Corinthians. It's a similar congregation to the one in Rome, predominantly a Gentile congregation, but there are Jews mixed in, and so uh, there's a lot of similar dynamics and things that are happening. And, and as we're reading, ask yourself this question, what, what is it that he wants them to understand? Okay, let's stand and read together. What is it that Paul wants them to understand as he writes these words? Together. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, Where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. 
and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So, what did you hear? Want to just throw it out? What's that? <laughs> yeah, the other hand comes over and massages the thumb. What'd you hear? What, what do you think Paul is wanting them to understand? We cannot do with it out each other. Yeah. One part suffers, the whole part suffers with it. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. The body is multiple parts. That's what makes it a body. Okay, good thoughts. Let's, uh, let's look again. Don, can we put verses 18 to 20 back on the screen? <clears throat> I think this is the heart of the text. We're going to do more with this text in our Sundays to come, but this morning I I want us to hear this. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. God has placed all the parts of the body together just as he wants them to be. Okay, I want you to turn to your neighbor and ask them what is probably an obvious question. What is Paul saying here in these verses about the role and the intention of God in the local congregation? What's he saying? What is God's role and intention in the life of the local congregation? This this letter is to a local congregation. It could be ours. What's he saying about what God wants and what God has designed? Okay, here we go. Holy smokes. Are we having fun? The time is flying. What did you find out? What did you find out? What do you think? What, what's, what's going on here? What's, what's Paul saying about God's role and his design, his purpose in what he's done? What did your neighbor say? But Craig, it would be so much easier if they all thought like me. Yeah. <laughs> What else? What else? Exactly. And that's the evangelistic dimension of being healthy and missional. It, it's, it's flowing out of who we are being intentional about becoming as the people of God. Others on the outside who don't experience that or know that, they look at that and they go, wow, that's, that's something. What else? Any other observations? Okay. The whole strength in numbers idea. Accomplishments. Okay. Okay. Sure, sure. And that doesn't mitigate individual gifts and abilities, but, but the, the collective result is, can be so much greater. What does that take to happen? Should we just say amen and go home? Because that is the heartbeat of it, my friends. Let's be honest here. 
There is nothing that is of more value to us in our lives than our time. I think time is more precious to us these days than money, most often. I mean, there are times when that's reversed, but we're busy folks. You know, again, you might not like my diagram, but I think there's truth there. That until we really understand what it is that Paul is saying here, inspired by God's Spirit, to not only the Corinthians and the Romans, but to God's people who have lived through the ages, unless we really understand what he's saying about the significant witness and life and health that comes through life in the body, and we give ourselves to that. And I'm not, you know I'm not a legalist. There's nobody going to take attendance Oh, Rick's only been here three out of the last six Sundays. We better have a talk with him. It's not that. That's legalism. And that's stupid and that's destructive. I, what I hope is, is that the Spirit of God will take the truth of what we're seeing in the Scripture here and begin to knock on our hearts and to say, it's like Henry Blackaby says in, in his book, Life Together. No, that's Bonhoeffer. What's Blackaby's book called? Experiencing God Together. Thank you, dear. Blackaby says, there are things that happen in together that don't happen when we're apart. And I had that experience twice this week. Wednesday night, we gathered for prayer. Oh my gosh, it was precious. And one of the persons that was there said, you know, I'd really like to just be anointed and be prayed for. So we took our little bottle of anointing oil and we anointed this person and we prayed. And it was awesome. And then yesterday, men's breakfast. Brother shared, and, and there were many dry eyes in that room. And those are the kinds of things that we can experience when we come together and share life together, and, and we learn and we grow together, which is so true. It's a, it's a life transformation that happens, and that's, that's why we grow better together, I think, than, than we do apart. The sinful condition, the sinful human condition, let's be honest again, is manifested in self-centeredness and pride and and, and we don't like diversity all that much. Even in our redeemed state, with the Spirit of God indwelling us, we would much rather prefer that folks be like us. If they just be like me and think like me, what a wonderful world it would be. Boring as can be, but nonetheless, wonderful and easier. You know, Hemispheres Magazine ran an article just this last April the article, it was called Best Friends. The article explored a number of sites that are dedicated to helping you find online friends. These companies will create fake users or pay real account holders to follow and like you on various social media sites. So, for instance, you could go onto the site called socialup.com. You could buy 500 likes for 30 bucks. You could buy 20,000 likes for $699. For a mere $10, Fan Me Now will find you a 1,000 Twitter followers. This is real stuff. We've got the potential for life-transforming community that meets us at the deepest level of our needs to be known and to know. People are paying money for this garbage. Our Father loves diversity and and, and what we have to hear Paul saying in these verses is that God in his infinite wisdom calls people together who are often quite different in a local congregation. And it's important, I think, and I, I know this goes without saying, but let me say it again, that we need to remember these are written to real-life people in a real-life church, in a real-life setting. Paul is not dealing with hypotheticals here. 
He's dealing with people who are wrestling with the reality of being diverse and being in community together. I mean, the, the, the letter, 1 Corinthians, starts out with his concerns over the arguments and the divisions that are going on. Somebody follows Paul, and the other one follows Cephas, and somebody follows Apollos, and, well, I was baptized by this one, and I was... Paul says, that is nonsense. Is Christ divided? Not at all. So it's no wonder that he returns back and does more with the idea of Christ's body in these verses that we're in. The natural differences between people, the Jews and the Greeks in those days, the experiential differences between people, economic status, a slave or a free person, who were they baptized by? Paul says they have no place for causing division within the local congregation. You remember when we started the series, we looked at Romans 12, we saw that it was a call to be living sacrifices in response to the amazing love and grace that God has shown to us in Christ Jesus. And the first step of a living sacrifice is to think differently, to allow our minds to be transformed and to be renewed by the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God indwells those who are living sacrifices. And so he starts this teaching to the Corinthians with a theological truth that is meant to correct wrong thinking. Just as the human body is a unit, is made up of many parts, so is the body of Christ. He says we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. That is our life. Do you hear what he's saying? The Spirit of God brought into the body of Christ and the Spirit of God is, in fact, our life together. No longer are the normal standards of status and race and economy and all the other things that divide us, they don't mean anything. They shouldn't mean anything in the life of the local congregation. Paul is saying to think differently than that is wrong thinking. And if you think differently then. We should be unified no matter what. Paul would say, no, that, that's, that's wrong. That's wrong thinking to, to, to go anywhere else with that. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, on account of faulty thinking, cease to be part of the body. Why? Because God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just where and how he wants them to be. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. The sense there is that just because you say that or think that doesn't make it true. So, we're going to go deeper with this connectedness over the next few Sundays together. And, and take a look a little bit more closely at the attitudes that divide us. Because there are two predominant attitudes that flow their way through this text. And we'll see it again in Romans 12 there are attitudes of superiority that we bring to the table. We may or may not know that. There are attitudes of inferiority that we bring to the table. We may or may not be aware of those. And most importantly, I think we forget this truth that what God has done here in this body that we call Applewood Community Church, it's His design. He's given each of us to one another for our growth as followers of Christ. Make sense? So, praise team, come on up. And as the praise team comes, I'm going to ask you all to do something a little different this morning as we, uh, as we conclude. Stand up with me and with the praise team. 
And as these guys are getting ready to go, let's just take a few quiet moments. Now, this is going to probably strike you as a little odd, but it's not the first time in my life that I've done something odd. I want you, particularly those of you who consider Applewood Community Church your home. And I'm not saying that this doesn't apply to anyone, but this will make more sense. For those of you who are here more regularly, I want you to just quietly look around the room at the faces. You can turn around. You can move if you want. I mean, everybody's going to feel weird because everybody's doing it. Just look at the faces. And, and let me ask you some questions as you're doing this. You don't have to answer them. Just tuck them away in your head. Keep looking. Look at the faces. Study the faces. And who do you know well in this room? Why do you know them well? Who do you not know well in this room? Why not? What would, what would change that for you? Would you like to know others better than you do? What holds you back from deeper investment of your life in some of these folks? What are your expectations? What are your fears? Do you know those who hurt? Do you know those who are living lives of great struggle and great faithfulness to God? We could go on and on with those kinds of questions, but the folks that are here represent, at least in part this morning, the body of Christ, Applewood Community Church. When Paul says these things that we've heard and will continue to look at, you need to put this group on those pages because that's who he's talking to us about. And that's what God wants us to learn. It is foundational. We cannot be healthy and missional unless we understand the importance of life and care, of knowing and being known in this body that he's put us in. I didn't say it. He did. Blame him. Amen. (laughs) Amen.